Welcome to the 12th episode of the fourth series of the Women in CX podcast, a series dedicated to real talk conversations between women in customer experience. Listen in as we share our career stories, relive the moments that shaped us and voice our opinions as loudly as we like about all manner of CX subjects. I'll be your host, Claire Muskip, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to one of our community members, a seriously fabulous CX queen from the UK. Let me introduce you to today's inspiring guest. She's a renowned customer experience and service design practitioner in UK supermarket retail with over 15 years experience in operational leadership. She spent time working in John Lewis department stores where she developed omnichannel propositions for fashion, beauty and home and is currently the senior customer experience lead for UK supermarket Waitrose and Partners. Please welcome to the show CX sister Ellie Sutton. Hi Ellie. Hello. How are you doing today? Yeah, wonderful. I uh, am joined by the the Waitrose summer fruit and berry selection. (laughs) Oh, it looks delicious, making me hungry. (laughs) But welcome to the Women in CX podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And welcome to everybody listening along at home as well. So Ellie, we're just going to jump straight in with the first question that I always ask every guest that comes on the show. How did you find your way into CX and where you are today? Um, So um, I have worked in food retail um, for pretty much all of my um, working career. Uh, But actually, I was I was thinking about this um, a couple of weeks ago and I should have had a sort of insight a good a good few years ago when I was choosing what degree to do at university and uh, was in a bookshop and decided to pick up a book called The Anthropology of Shopping, um, which was all about like how brands and how retailers um, basically kind of you know, work with the people that they want to sell their things to. Um, so as a result of picking up that book, I actually studied um, archaeology and anthropology at university, which was amazing and loved um, the study of anthropology, kind of, you know, delving into kind of how and, and, you know, why people think and do things the way that they do. Um, And as a result of that, moved into um, food uh, retail uh, as a graduate trainee. So I've worked for the last um, 10 years or so in the operations side of things. So leading um, branches across southern England um, and then kind of areas uh, within that of, of Waitrose all the way through. Um, and then began to, I suppose, kind of understand that I had a slightly different way of approaching things where I would really kind of listen to the customers that I was talking to on the shop floor um, and then get little teams of people in my branches together to go, the customer's giving us this piece of feedback, like what can we do about it? What's kind of within Mm. our gift? Um, Mm. And began to realise that 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 way of thinking wasn't quite the same as lots of my colleagues of kind of knitting that customer and operation stuff together. Um, so then began to kind of think there must be a way to do this with a bit more of a broader reach. So, um, so yeah, got a, a central CX role um, and moved in. I was, I was really honoured actually to kind of move into John Lewis, first of all. And I worked with the director of customer experience um, over in JL. Um, went to the department store um, in England and uh, worked with him as his business development manager for probably about 18 months or so. Um, and then when a, when a CX role came up in Waitrose to get back to my 
passion for food and and kind of that industry I, I snapped it up and uh, that's where I am today oh I love this story and so much resonated with me even just in the first couple of minutes um Sim, I I'd not even thought about this ever till now um that something really similar happened to me I was doing my master's in marketing and actually wrote my thesis on the cathedrals of consumption which was actually about retail experience I didn't go yeah. end up working in retail for like another 10 years but <laughs> there must have been something that like kind of sparked the interest like your book your book on the anthropology of retailing um but also like coming from a retail background myself for anyone who doesn't know I spent five years working at Sainsbury's which was a competitor to <laughs> Waitrose uh, when I when I was there back in the day um but but really very much experiencing especially in the food side of retailing that the job to do was very much putting stuff on shelves keeping things clean and um that was the limitation especially back in the day of um of, of, of that so being kind of like an early lead in doing things and thinking about things differently um it must have been hard because you were in an environment that most people didn't think and act that way so props to you girl um so I'm really interested especially about kind of having been a woman in operations at that time I was a woman in hospitality operations at a similar age it was hard for me but recognizing how kind of male dominated store management was when I worked in retail, even though I was on the head office side at the time. Tell me more about kind of the, the challenges you had to overcome to become the woman you are today. Yeah, it's really interesting looking back at it. And um, I, I, I do remember having kind of moments sort of in your early and mid twenties where I'd walk into rooms for kind of operational, you know, field outings and kind of conferences and things. And literally looking around and seeing, you know, almost trying to, you know, pick out the other women that were there um, because it would just be this completely male dominated um, industry at that stage. And, and actually, you know, in the brands that um, I've been working in, primarily kind of men wearing um, chinos and sort of Gantt polo shirts. There was oh definitely, there was definitely a uniform. Laughing. <laughs> uh, yeah and like the women tended to be like the HR business partners didn't they yeah, really yeah. as opposed to the operators it was it was totally kind of gender stereotypes playing out um but I also I look back with it at it with almost a fondness of the fact that I think I was able to see that as an opportunity um and and really kind of feel the responsibility that you know was on my shoulders to kind of make sure that I was bringing a different viewpoint and a different kind of way of thinking um, to that room and to make sure my voice was being heard at those points rather than necessarily just you know kind of you know wilting into the background of those environments so I, I think in some ways it it made me become the the kind of you know advocate for myself that I am today of, of kind of speaking up for you know uh, you know in a way that I think is appropriate um so in some ways I look back at it and think it was a positive but not one that I would ever want kind of you know the next cohort of of leaders to have to replicate Mm -hmm. yeah tell me let's unpick that a little bit more so so you're saying that like being in that um, environment where you were the only one it meant that you had to fight harder to be heard and practice yeah, I think that so. and I, yeah and I think you know yeah 
men and women think differently, you know, and, and especially in a food retail environment, you know, the majority of, you know, people that are using those, you know, th those places to shop are the, you know, like it or not, the women of the household kind of coming in and, and kind of choosing. That was our key audience. And yet we're running these, you know, multi-million pound business units in some cases through a total male perspective um so i think kind of you know just even you know things like how you would approach customer service and how you would talk to people and the kind of training that you would give people of kind of you know helping mums with kids in trolleys and the thing that those tiny little bits of the customer experience that for that mum with a newborn baby that's screaming and a toddler that kind of is demanding an ice cream or whatever it is, you know, being able to see that through a, a sort of female perspective and actually then empower your team to say, well, just go and make a difference by, you know, whip a magazine off the shelf and give that to the toddler because it's got some plastic tat on the front of it. And, you know, very much kind of move away to see the, you know, the holistic picture here of all of those incremental pieces that would make a difference to the customer experience rather than mm. necessarily, and again, you know, being focused on, you know, wastage percentages or shrinkage or staff turnover, you've, you've got to be able to take a step back in those positions. And I, I think women ha have that ability to do that in, in, you know, and bring a slightly different perspective to it. And I'm not sure I would have got that had I not been, forced to be kind of that voice in the room um and and kind of feel like I could step up and and give that different opinion um, and, and no so, doubt yeah. educate your colleagues along, yeah, <laughs> along, totally. along the way um so yeah like I'm just going to warn all of our listeners now I think we're going to seriously geek out mm. talking about supermarket retailing <laughs> um but like I'm thinking back to like, I left in 2017 and it was, I guess, the pre-pandemic landscape. And um, I remember sitting in our um, meetings initially with Justin King and then later with Mike Coop. And we'd all be, we'll always be looking at kind of performance of the big four um, at one point in time. So as Asda, Morrisons and Tesco. And all of a sudden there was this huge shift in terms of market share and um, the, the discounted brands mm. appeared and started to disrupt the um, the classic equation of big four. Mm. And then all of a sudden, mm. like Waitrose and M&S started to be eating away at the market share of the big four. And I would always be like looking up and thinking like, well, I see that Waitrose are doing that. Your growth was massive, wasn't it? You increased the footprint mm -hmm. hugely, but there was clearly a demand for um, an alternative to traditional generic supermarkets that competed on price. And uh, whilst the price became something that the discounters were beating the generic supermarkets on and became their USP, there was this kind of quality aspect up at the, the top of the tree with you guys. I was always a bit jealous, actually. I, we very much admired Waitrose and their customer experience. I'd go and like take photos of what you guys were up to and things like counters in there. <laughs> and space. So sorry, that's a little admission there. Um, but yeah, I'm just like in, interested to see kind of a bit more about what what it was on your side because you know what you guys were up to and what the discounters were up to was a, a real opportunity for me and customer experience in the supermarket retailing lens to um 
help the business see how customer experience, whether it's through online or through in-store or propositions, um, mm. new propositions, things like click and collect, could create destination stores or um, more seamless experiences in line with the amount of data we had. But yeah, I'm just curious, like, what was it like for you? And and during the pandemic, what was going on in the supermarket space? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think looking back, there was definitely kind of probably around sort of 2015, 2017 was um, the Waitrose heyday in terms of um, we had a, a, a business strategy that was... Um, was, was called veg uh, which was volume efficiency and growth and and definitely the growth element of things was somewhere something that we absolutely nailed in terms of that that strategy and I think one of the things that was was our key to being able to unlock that was sort of brand assurance and exactly to what you kind of talk about you you ended up in in the uk you know food retail market with having really assured brands at the bottom kind of the discounters you know the aldi and little and what they were able to do to sort of disrupt that market and then you had this space at the top um that waitrose and marks and spencers were you know able to kind of step into to say well we are never and, and you know waitrose and marks and spencers are smaller so in terms of sort of our buying power and our ability to to rival the big four we, we were never ever going to be able to compete on price uh, and interestingly from a customer perspective we have a huge amount of sort of history and um, you know brand reputation that I think we were really able to leverage during that time to say you know come you know I, I know that you know, we were really trying to be to step into that best five percent we knew that we were never going to be number five and that going after that element of volume was going to be it but if we could grow our estate to make sure that you know enough of the country had access to waitrose and I, I guess we started with the physical um and then that was sort of fairly quickly um moved into our our kind of digital and our you know our dfcs and things like that and and how we could kind of ca capture the online market and i think you know the all of that time now the kind of investment in our store so that we have this large estate across the country and and that's also in um sort of petrol station forecourts it's in welcome breaks we were able to kind of find all of those sort of niche areas that we could just tap into and and kind of put in the waitrose brand to just be able to get out to more customers and I, I think the other bit that Waitrose were a real disruptor in at that point was um, the loyalty program and free coffee um, was one that of was the it. kind of free coffee. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I um, but you know that was such an interesting you know time in the company, and and I, you know it, it was so it was so interesting being sort of part of uh, the team when we were we were landing that and hearing kind of what it was going to do from a marketing perspective and and actually it really kind of different it, you know it's it we you know it it's an interesting element of just a completely different angle that you could take on loyalty compared to you know, your Tesco club cards and your nectar points, etc. Um, and yeah, it really worked as a footfall driver. So yeah, a big expansion of the store estate, then kind of keeping people in by giving them a free cup of coffee every time. Um, and all of a sudden, kind of you're there and your your brand is getting kind of more and more noticed. And 
the the quality and the yeah the, of the product etc then kind of goes hand in hand um so uh but it also i think that it comes with a responsibility of the brand in terms of how we maintain that customer experience there is so, you know, we look at some of the things that Aldi and Lidl and things can get away with at the other end. So we look at things like so our true. payment strategy and, you know, what you can get away with at that point. And, you know, in Waitrose, if you've got, you know, our customers want to go in and if you've got, you know, one person in the queue in front of you, that's not good enough for a Waitrose. Whereas you go into Aldi and Little and there's like two super, two checkouts open and it's back through the store and you're like, why don't my customers accept this? But you you understand that you have a responsibility to the brand and to the expectations you've set with your customers that that just isn't going to happen. Um, so yeah, I, I think it we we've definitely been able to create this niche within the marketplace but it's then our challenge as a customer experience team to then figure out kind of how do you maintain that and you know in you know especially at the moment Marks and Spencers are flying in terms of their in-store proposition and you know the latest Stevenage branch and things is really interesting so yeah it definitely feels at the moment like we've got some uh we've got some work to do we've got we're, we're the ones now going into other supermarkets taking the pictures and being like I want to do that <laughs> oh fascinating and um yeah like I think I think it's a really important point there isn't it so with higher prices and quality comes an increased expectation and um, the the brand creating that expectation alongside it that has to therefore then be consistently delivered. Um, but the increase in operating costs that comes with, especially in-store, yeah. um, being able to, to do that um and and maintaining a margin and a sustainable business model like we we, were, we had to go through like significant labor cost cutting when things got difficult this was kind of back 2016-17 um did that kind of affect you guys or was your price and your margin stable no, enough to... I, I i think that is a, a constant you know challenge for us uh, you know uh, us as a business and um you know especially when you're reading the headlines and things at the moment as you say that the pandemic actually was you know again heyday. one of those heydays that golden <laughs> era for shops when we kind of look back at that and especially for for food retail because there was nowhere else to go mm. um so so in in some ways kind of coming out the back of that and then you know everything that you know we're reading about you know cost of living crisis and potential recessions and food inflation it, you know we cannot we cannot rest on our laurels in terms of understanding that price is a massive influencer for all of our customers you know you can't just say that you're going to be the you know the best five percent and you know your customers are immune from these kind of you know elements in the press and you know everything they're talking about so again it, it, it's a real balance of having that responsibility for your customers to be doing the right thing in terms of you know you know cost of goods and, and how much they're paying for that um and then you know uh, the amount of money left over to continue to invest in new propositions and innovation that you would you would want to be seeing us do um that's a very mm. live conversation and, and challenge for us at the moment mm. and I, I guess um like digital and digital digital change 
everything, didn't it? But the pandemic accelerated digital. So like being able to fulfill groceries through online, being able to provide click and collect, non-food click and collect. I know we spoke about this earlier today about you know kind of integrating food and non-food um yeah. in know in those shopping journeys um but being able to kind of join all of that together into an ecosystem with the the, the aspect of, of data because we get so much don't we from supermarket shopping like being able to understand and know customers probably better than anybody because yeah. we see what they put into the, into their baskets and um what ranges they shop in etc um but it is a really interesting time again um because yeah it was i mean the, the yeah and again from i mean the, the expedite expedition of our, our kind of digital um abilities and the number of slots that we had i mean i i think it, outside of pan, the pandemic it probably would have taken us a five to ten year business plan to open the, the number of slots that we were then magically able to do i mean britain loves a crisis <laughs> and, and we we totally respond um in those sorts of situations with that sort of war mentality of like yes we can do this we're going to get on it and from a sort of service design and proposition development it was a you know i'm kind of sat here thinking how why can't i replicate the speed at which i was able to work kind of 18 months ago and how we were able to just kind of knock through barriers and and things like that so um yeah we were we were really able to to speed up the ability you know our ability to offer the the digital and the the online service i think there's probably now that sort of settling period of the combination of of how customers want to shop moving forward and the you know there is absolutely no doubt that that you know bricks and mortar kind of you know, supermarket retailing is not dead. We need to continue to invest in our store estates, but equally kind of having that, the the ability for customers to shop online and how you knit those two together so they're not two entirely separate sort of business units because from a customer, I'm like, well, it's the same brand. I just, you know, sometimes I'm having a party and I want it all delivered to me and you should know, to your point about data, you should know that that's what I like mm-hmm. to have. And, you know, th- those kind of expectations of how you deliver a, a truly kind of omni-channel experience. I think that's probably the challenge for us now, kind of post-pandemic, to see which behaviours have actually kind of landed as being permanent behavioural shifts than just mm-hmm. the kind of the in-pandemic mm-hmm. reaction, because there's there's no, there's no other way to shock, etc. I'm intrigued like have um do you have like too many slots available now have, has that had to decrease or is it kind of still got the uptake that it had now people have changed their behavior because they got used to being able to shop online and avoid queues even though yours are only for one person deep <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, well I can't say that they always are but you know what I mean <laughs> um, uh yeah we're definitely not at capacity um but it, you know again it's interesting for um you know the the supermarket industry has to be able to respond to those magical four days of the year pre-Christmas which which makes or breaks a a food retailer's kind of year to be honest both in terms of actual results and how you kind of leave the leave the year feeling professionally um 
So I think despite the fact that actually, you know, for a lot of the time we're not at capacity, it gives you confidence in the experience that customers can have at those times of the year that matter the most. So, yeah, you know, Christmas and Easter stand out as the, the biggest ones. So we at least know that we're in a good place to be able to deliver that. Yeah, I'm going to have to pick up on two points here. And the first one is about um, stores and online not being two discrete business units. Um, like when I was at Sainsbury's, retail and digital were still felt very, very separate. Um, and the director of operations at the time, um, I was constantly like rallying this call around needing to bring digital and retail together and having like a kind of unified CX and UX team to help them to do that um, but it became apparent it wasn't going to happen in my lifetime um, and funnily enough I ran into him he's now the CEO of Sainsbury's and I saw him at um, an awards dinner actually and he was like he saw me and he was like Claire we did it we brought them together <laughs> um, only in the last 12 months and I was like oh my god amazing um, but that kind of challenge of historical um, disparity being one of the biggest challenges that that business at the time did need to overcome in order to be able to deliver seamless omni-channel which was the goal uh personalized experiences that integrated the data together um but the second thing i have to talk about is christmas it was called listeners the golden quarter and and, and as eddie said you know such a huge reliance on that quarter being the make or break of the end of year right and the financial performance sitting with that but also the Christmas adverts. <laughs> yeah, that was always a war, wasn't it? Seems a bit less, uh, less, less, uh, less so these days. Um, but I remember like my heyday of CX in in food retailing was um, having kind of proven CX design and proposition development outside of marketing. Being able to when we moved into marketing in one of the very many, many, many restructures that customer experience got moved around in but actually being within that division and having Christmas and this golden quarter as an opportunity to design propositions and services and design experiences around this kind of campaign experience both on and offline and in contact centers um, and the message around the Christmas advert was what we used to do exactly what you were talking about earlier which was you know being more than just a brand statement you know we, we talk about live well for less all year round but at Christmas it was for sharing so being able to use that as the inspiration around um, designing uh, concepts and experiences that we trialed well before Christmas and ended up rolling out literally across the whole estate and when I say whole estate I'm talking about like 190,000 employees 32 million customers like absolutely a huge scale so I was just super interested in in kind of for you like the challenges and opportunities where are you taking service design CX design and proposition development these days like you don't have to tell me exactly what you're working on <laughs> what does that look like for you so um I think it's a really interesting time um to be able to kind of you know look at what what is that next stage in terms of and probably the integration of kind of digital into a kind of proposition design as well and I don't mean that in terms of the kind of super I don't mean in that in terms of online shopping but in terms of how do we use technology to enhance propositions um, 
and 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 equally so with the brand that you know I work in there are certain elements that kind of you know sit within it from a service perspective from a kind of product knowledge and what do what do people expect from our brand when we're looking at new propositions so um, and I, I kind of referred to it right at the beginning of one of the things that I think is, you know, I've really loved doing in this role is knitting that kind of operational execution of it, because quite often you can sit and have a you know, wonderful idea and kind of you know, that understanding of what you think your customers might like. But actually, you know, food retailing is so fast paced. You know, there are you know, our poor partners, as we call them, staff. Um, in, in Waitrose branches that are being bombarded by, you know, 20 different things to do, overly complex propositions just do not work as well as kind of really simple things. So, but equally, those simple things need to be kind of, you know, really empowering and exciting for a customer to be feeling. So my current remit at the moment is um, looking at our future propositions, our food service counters. So um, a lot of our competitors, Sainsbury's, them and being yeah. one of them, have taken all of them out. Um, and and for us, we really believe that our you know our fish counter, our meat counter, our cheese and deli, all of them should be kind of our showcase platforms for experiential retailing, the best of the best in terms of product and service. Um, so I am properly loving this role of being able to kind of say kind of, yeah, what does, you know, and you go into, you know, other places like Italy and, you know, leaner stores and some of those amazing kind of, you know, more independent style retailers. And like, how can I, how can I cherry pick the elements of those, you know, bits of proposition and put them into a, a kind of, you know, mass market supermarket um, you know, idea. So um, that's the kind of challenge that I've been set at the moment is, you know, we think that they should be our brand point of difference, but they, you know, they need to be relevant for customers. They need to be probably, yeah, more digitally enabled than they are at the moment. They should be bringing that theatre and that, you know, experience whilst and this is the challenge still being commercially viable, viable. Um, yeah and and you know delivering from a commercial perspective so um I've certainly got my work cut out for me at the moment from a, a kind of service design mm. and, and proposition perspective but I'm loving it <laughs> oh my god we should like totally compare notes because that was one of my major projects obviously my stuff will be a bit out of date now but I had exactly the same challenge <laughs> yeah um, well, obviously it didn't stick around because they've all been ripped out from uh, from that side but um but um but I just I, I remember just like th thinking about like Morrison's for example they showcased that market street didn't they yeah. we still I don't know I've not been to a Morrison's for such a long time I don't even know if they're down south you know I used to live up north um but the um kind of like the, the theatre all happening very clearly at the front of store um but whereas like Waitrose counters seem to be like quite hidden away don't they and yeah, I mean, they tend to be kind of the, the back, back wall yeah. of the of the of the supermarket. So yeah, I mean, part of it will be working. Um, Where do they yeah, go? My my yeah, my customer experience team has store development as part of it. Um, so it is really interesting to 
be able to kind of develop the propositions and then hand that over to our so you know as and when we're refitting or refurbishing branches you've kind of built those principles of which the the kind of proposition should be then rolled out into across the estate so you never know in a couple of years time you might begin to see some uh, some funky new counters um kind of appearing at the start at the start of the customer journey rather than kind of halfway <laughs> through I, I tell you what they like i you can take the girl out of supermarkets, but still to this day, like wherever I go, if I ever go on, like wherever I go on holiday or I'm traveling, I'm still resisting the urge to pull my phone out and take photos of what's going on in a supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> it's once it's in your veins, it's in your veins, isn't it? Um, well, that's, well, it's been awesome to chat to you today, Ellie. Unfortunately, our listeners are going to have to go. Uh, but But what would your top piece of advice or key takeaway be for women in CX listening along? Um, I think kind of reflecting on my personal journey, the 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 one piece that I wish I'd given to my kind of 20-year-old self was about being your own advocate. I think I I you know I knew that this was kind of the route that I wanted to take, but I think I spent kind of the majority of my 20s expect yeah either waiting to be given permission by somebody or kind of expecting somebody to kind of set this magical career pathway for me um and yeah I, th- I think actually kind of the penny dropped around kind of oh I can make this happen it might take a bit of persistence but I have a real passion for kind of you know brands making sure that their customers are being listened to and they're being heard and then you know what we can do from a service design and proposition development to to actually bring that to life and yeah I I wish that I'd kind of given myself permission to kind of tap into some of that and explore what was out there kind of a few years earlier because yeah I think it's amazing and you know don't be afraid to ask for support within that so um you know, be your be your best advocate and you know, reach out to those amazing people around you because you know, everybody you know that I've asked for help and especially joining a network um such as women in CX, it's it's so supportive and lovely to kind of, you know, know that other people are there to help you on that mission if you just take that gamble and kind of put yourself out there in the first place. And and also I think being part of the community and the network is seeing that we've all got very similar shared challenges as women um and actually how rare it is for women to advocate for themselves in the way that they advocate for for customers so i think that's a really important point um to land on and yeah we should absolutely be championing ourselves more um and as you say you know collaborating with other women or uh, yeah well in the community for sure um, to champion one another and each other's voices and ensure that we have that feeling of empowerment that we can advocate for ourselves as well as our customers and customer experience so that's a great point to end on just like to say thank you so much for geeking out with me today I could, pleasure. I could, I literally I got so excited uh, thinking back to some of those memories it definitely was a very special time in my career for sure and very excited to see uh, what you and Waitrose do next in the customer experience service design and proposition space <laughs> Thanks. It's been a pleasure to, to geek out with you too, Claire. I can't do it anytime. <laughs> we'll definitely be doing it some more. Um, so thanks to everybody for listening along as well. And we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. Bye, Ellie. Thanks for listening to the Women in CX podcast with me, Claire Muscat. 
If you enjoyed the show, please drop us a like, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening or watching on. And if you want to know more about becoming a member of the world's first online membership community for women in customer experience, please check out our website, womenincx.community and follow the Women in CX page on LinkedIn. Join us again next time where I'll be talking to one of our community members from the caucuses about female entrepreneurship and striking the right balance between CX strategy and implementation. See you all next time.